Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuining Bill. Welcome back, Afropolitans. My name is Cassie Tollis, sitting in for Michael Motoling Bill on the Law Report today. And of course, we are talking all matters legal. If you have any legal queries that you'd like to pose to my guests, I'm not a legal person, so don't pose the questions to me, but my guests are very well versed in these matters. You can call us on our studio line, which is 86 or you could WhatsApp us on 063-688-0959. Or if you are a, a member of the Twitterati, you can simply just tweet us on at KFM. 95.9 and just tell us what it is that you think we'd like we should address in this particular show and earlier on we were speaking to the chairperson of the legal practice council and the director at Molefe Lepo that was Mrs. Kathleen Mutolo Lepo was giving us some insights into how the legal practice council works and of course now we're speaking to two individuals and that is Debelo Mutuane who's an attorney and the founder of Sister-in-Law and also in studio I'm joined by Kutuano Pushoko who's a director at Pushoko Attorneys. Good evening Kutuano Hi, how are you? I'm all good. And I'd like to start with you first. Tell us exactly what it is that you do as the director at Pushoka Tonis. Well, as Mam Lepu said um, before our, our little discussion now, I'm regulated by the LPC. But my firm, which is in Johannesburg and in Soweto, deals with legal matters ranging from family law as well as third-party litigation. That would be your RAF. Um, suing the Minister of Police, Minister of Health, so third-party litigation, personal injury claims, and then I'm also a specialist in mining and prospecting law. So yeah. that's your more yeah, specialist Yeah, your life areas. is complicated. So many specialities. But yeah, I'd like to just <laughs> introduce Debelo before we come back and get a greater detail of what you do, Kutano. Good evening, Debelo. Good evening, and how are you, Kutano? I'm fine, thanks, and you, Debelo. It's Go a sisterhood ahead. thing. It's a sisterhood yes, thing. Yes, my I'm, sister I feel like in student. law. How are you sister-in-law? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, of course, Debello, you're the founder of Sister-in-Law. Could you just briefly tell us exactly what Sister-in-Law is all about and what it is that you guys do? Okay. Um, Sister-in-Law is a platform which basically empowers women through legal education. Uh, at the moment, a lot of my presence is on social media. Um, like you mentioned, Twitter, not too long ago. Um, and I've been running various... What's your handle? Around. What's your handle? What's your handle? We need to tell our listeners <laughs> where to find um, you. The handle for both Instagram and um, Twitter is at sister underscore in underscore law underscore. So sister in law, but with underscores under each word. So it's at sister underscore word. in underscore mm-hmm. law. Okay, carry mm-hmm. on. And please. then underscore afterwards, yes. <laughs> it's a triple so set both. of underscores. Okay. Yeah. So that's both on Insta- Instagram and Twitter. And then Facebook page is Sustain Law SA. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so the, the, the platform basically discuss various uh, family law issues, marriage, divorce, maintenance, cohabitation, wills and estate, basically everything that a woman needs to know about keeping her affairs at home in order. And um, I'm also doing various workshops around um, the country, with the next one being in Durban next month. And Kutano, I mean, I think the, the, these issues are probably quite important that, you know, probably access to law and access to the legal systems is still quite fragmented. And I suspect that women in particular are the ones that either don't have access to the information or don't have the financial means to access, you know, legal assistance. How 
do you think an organization like Sister in Law would assist in this? And I specifically didn't ask this of the founder of Sister in Law because that would be biased. I'm asking you, I mean, as, <laughs> as, as, as a person who's probably observed the legal practice, do you think there is still a place to be played by organizations like Sister in Law who really want to facilitate access to legal assistance for women in particular? I think there's a very big opportunity for Sister in Law. The reason why I say that is because there is a missing middle in the legal profession. You'll find that those who are financially stable are able to come to law firms such as myself, give me an instruction, and then I can run with that. Then you have those who earn under 7,000, I think it is, they'd be able to go to legal aid. But as I say, you'd have to be earning below a certain threshold. So where sister-in-law comes in, I think, from what I've noticed is they arm women with knowledge. So even if you can't go to an attorney or you do qualify for legal aid, they give you knowledge that that you're not just told by an attorney that this is what you should do. You actually have an understanding of what it is you want to do, what aims you want an attorney to assist you with, which is different than going to an attorney asking for assistance as a blank canvas. So you are armed with knowledge, you're armed with information, and you'd be able to see that, no, what this person is telling me is not exactly what I need, um, as opposed to just, you. so they empower you to be an, a client as opposed to be someone who is told by an attorney, you need to be the one giving instructions. And with information you get from sister-in-law, you'd be able to say, this is what I want in my will. I actually want a will. I want to be married in community of property or out of community of property. I need an antinatural contract. So you're going there, you already have knowledge. And I mean, one of the issues that you raise here is something that I want to drill on right now uh, before we lose sight of it. This idea of access to the legal aid um, and legal aid says that if your income is below a particular threshold, currently 7,000 rand, then you have access to legal aid. I mean, that threshold, uh, I remember you used the term missing middle and the term missing middle reminds mm-hmm. me of our days during FISMAS 4 and the fights that we were having with the politicians back then was to simply say that the threshold hadn't been updated for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. How long has this 7,000 rand limit been in place? It's quite recent because it initially was 5,500 and then they stepped it up to 7,000 rand. But still, when you look at how expensive litigation is, because there is a saying that litigation is the sport for the wealthy, the sport for the rich, it's really not an exaggeration. You do have to have quite deep pockets in order for you to litigate with an attorney. But I guess that's where um, the state can be applauded because legal aid is necessary. But then what about the ladies in the middle, in the middle, missing middle? I mean, what is the basis for them coming out with that limit? Is this simply them saying that, look, this is a budget that we have. And if we look at the country's income dynamics, if we say 7,000 rand, the number of potential um, queries that we're going to get will be sufficient for us to deal with. Or is it simply just a random thumb suck? Because I would think the most practical thing is for them to say, based on our budget, we think that if 10 million people fall, in, fall within that income bracket and by some extrapolation, perhaps 10 million citizens, there'll be 10,000 people that come through. That's what we can afford. How do they come up with that number? Uh, well, that would be a question for legal aid and uh, policymakers there. However, I do think that there would be um, some sort of information that they take because they do take statistics. They would be able to see how many people they turn away and how much those people are earning. And then maybe that's where they'd extrapolate that figure from. But I can't tell you off the top of my head because I really am not, I, I'm not sure.
And I, I, if I can tell you that in 2015, my biggest fights with National Treasury and the politicians in in charge of the national purse at the day was to simply say, when you come up with these arbitrary limits and you say 7,000 rand and below, you qualify for legal aid. What you're implying is that a person who owns who earns 7,000 and one rand is able to afford legal aid. And I suspect that if a person is earning 7,000 rand, they probably still can't afford to instruct an attorney and advocate to even deal with the simple matter of saying, look, I've got a divorce matter. These are the issues that need to be entertained. The state is, mm. by implication, saying that that person can afford legal services. Can they? Um, well, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think that same logic can be applied to issues such as uh, interstate or testate succession. Uh, if someone is to get a letter of authority versus a letter of executorship, there's a threshold amount um, which is determined by the minister from time to time. And like you're saying, if if someone's estate is worth over 250000 it is now, um, who's to say that that person is able to f- afford the services of an attorney when dissolving the estate? You know, it's exactly the same as who's to say that someone who earns 7,000 7, rand is able to um, access the services of an attorney. And, you know, uh, to be quite frank, 7,000 rand isn't even the deposit an attorney would need to start servicing you as a client. So that, that really does leave a lot of um, actually very fragile and um, disadvantaged people sitting in the lurk, lurch. Yeah. Afropolitans, we are talking about matters legal, and I have two guests. One of guests that I've got in studio is Kutwana Pushoko, who's a director at Pushoka Attorneys, and also on the phone we are joined by Debelo Mutwane, who's an attorney and the founder of Sister-in-Law, and we're really just talking about all matters legal, and our current focus really just on the question of access to justice. And of course, Debelo has founded an organization called Sister-in-Law, and I think the puns notwithstanding, you can sort of understand that it really just has a focus on really elevating the ability of women to access, um, you know, the legal system and or the justice system as well. Debelo, I mean, you know, the motivation for you to start Sister-in-Law, what exactly was it that you found as perhaps a frustration or the glaring gap in really the ability of women in particular to access the justice system that you then thought, hey, if I can create this organization, perhaps I'm moving a step closer to bridging that gap. What was your motivation? Um, okay, so initially... Um I run a legal consulting company, which focused a lot on uh, commercial aspects, so drafting contracts, company registration, trademarks. Um, But I'd have a lot of women who would send me emails who needed literally basic advice um, pertaining to their their affairs at home. And I found that it actually doesn't make sense to, to, to make women pay for sort of information that should be accessible to them, information that they should just be able to to read through while they're on their phones. Um, I noticed that a lot of the time we spend on our phone when we're in between how train rides or public transport, whatever the case is, we're most likely to go on Facebook or, you know, just read a blog post on someone's website. And I thought, let me take this information to the people because not even, maybe people aren't Googling the right things or maybe Google is not their um, preferred social networking platform. I said, people are on Instagram and on Twitter the whole day. Let me create a platform where we can have conversations around various legal issues. And yeah, that's when Sustain Law was born, basically me just painting out everything that um, pertains to women's daily legal needs. 
And uh, Debelo, I, I think, uh, I mean, I work in a different uh, professional space where it's that accounting profession. Don't, don't point fingers. This is not the time. <laughs> but I think one of the issues that people might raise is the risk associated with that in that you might put up a particular opinion. And of course, in a platform like Twitter, for example, perhaps the context mm-hmm. is not always well ventilated. Mm-hmm. Somebody logs in and then they say that there was a query from one person and then you provided an answer. And then they're like, oh, that sounds like the type of problem that I have. And then they act on the type of advice that you get. I mean, what is the risk associated with that? Can people then come back to you and say, look, I saw what you had said as a, as a recommendation or as advice to mm. this person. I took that advice and it left me worse off and I feel that you are to blame for it. How do you deal with that type of risk? I think it's key what you're saying um, because uh, a lot of things can be thrown out of context, especially people who aren't your committed followers. But with um, my existing following, every every once in a while, ever so often, I always put up a disclaimer saying um, this platform is purely for educational purposes. You are always advised to seek professional assistance from an attorney. And if you act, then you do so at your own peril. That, that is my standard disclaimer because I do not want people coming back to me saying I ruined their lives. How do you fit that disclaimer into a tweet, though? How do you fit that disclaimer into a tweet? <laughs> Because when I I log on, I'll be like, yo, this is what she said. And then I'll act on that. I put it into a thread often. I always try to remind people, um, because, you know, Twitter's a lot more fast-moving than Instagram and Facebook, for example. But but ever so often, I try to put it up as a header as well so that people that are logging in for the first time can see that, okay, this is um, legal education. But as well, when I tweet, I try to remind people that it is just an opinion and people are always encouraged to further legal advice because on Twitter you don't actually get the full story so I'm never in a position to to give a, a, an opinion based on um, you know uh, half a story and all those issues can be ventilated and ironed out during a professional consultation yeah and it is perhaps that idea of a professional consultation where a lot of people say look I made the quotation for professional consultation it said I need so much money I need a particular deposit I can't afford that let me take my gamble with the type of advice that I've seen them and I suppose for them it's really the legitimacy question they'll be like look she has an organization called sister in law she's not going to go out there and give us really really rubbish advice so there is some merit into what she's saying and people are going to act on that and then only later on to realize that perhaps there was a particular nuance or a particular angle or a particular disclaimer, if you want to call it that, that they didn't take into account. Yeah, how do you deal with that? They would have had to. Personally, I haven't had to deal with that issue, thank God. Um, but whenever I do see that someone needs uh, information which goes beyond the timeline, I try to send them a message on the side saying, listen, um, your issue seems quite complex. Please can you send me an email and can I set you up? with an attorney who will be able to assist you going forward. Because I do have a database of attorneys. So um, depending on what specific assistance you need, I then um, refer you to that attorney who will deal with your issue on on a, on a wider scope, if I can say. And also, also as somebody who has interacted with sister-in-law before, obviously the, the legal fraternity is quite small. Um, everyone knows that Debelo might give me advice which is suited to my situation. You can't now go and apply advice that was given to me for my situation, yet you haven't elaborated on your circumstances as well. So people should know in general, whether you go to a doctor, a doctor might give you cough mixture A for your cough. You can't now assume that you can come and take cough mixture A 
for your cough as well because you think they sound similar. No. Cough mixture is for coughs. However, coughs are different. Same with legal advice. Debella will let no, so in, in, no, in no way give generalist advice to everybody. She can educate you with regards to um, how the law works for a particular field, but for you to then stretch that into something you're going to act on, it cannot be so. All right, Afropolitans, we are speaking to two very accomplished young black female advocates, our attorneys. Um, this is Debele Mochwane, who's the founder of Sister-in-Law, and Kutwane Pushoko, who's the director of Pushoko Attorneys. And they're really just giving us insights into how the legal profession works. And after the short uh, break, we are going to carry on with this conversation. And that is the Law Report. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuining Bill. Welcome back, Afropolitans. I'm definitely not Michael Motoring Bill. My name is Cassie Toller, sitting in for Michael today on this award-winning radio station. And, of course, we're talking all matters legal. If you have any particular issues that you'd like us to engage on, feel free to call us on our studio line, which is 86 Even WhatsApp us if you feel like it on 063-688-0959. Or perhaps Twitter is your platform. At KFM 95.9 is where we are. And also at Karuska Kaya. So, please... Uh, throw some legal conundrums our way. I definitely will not be the one that answers them because I'm definitely not a lawyer. But of course, I am here in studio with a lawyer. This is Kutwana Poshoko, who's a director of Poshoko Attorneys. And also on the line, we are joined by Debolo Montrani, who's an attorney and the founder of Sister-in-Law. And Debolo, before we went on a break, we were obviously talking about really these issues relating to the question of access to justice, particularly for uh, females and black females in particular in this country. And and this is why Sister-in-Law serves as a good platform for giving people guidance and of course that guidance must then be supplemented with proper legal advice but again as Gutlano said earlier on you know this issue of really the cost of accessing the legal system 7,000 rand and below gets you access to legal aid but there's a perception out there that you know Legal aid uh, is not where the best and the brightest minds tend to be. So, of course, it's the people that I have themselves then said, look, we're going to go and work there. But when a person sees in these particularly prominent cases, particularly the the big political cases, you see some faces out there, you're like, hey, that's the attorney that I have. But, of course, when you go to the legal aid board, that's not the attorney you're going to get. Debello? Is that for me? Yes, oh. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh, um, I, di- I didn't really have uh, much to say on the legal aid issue. Um, my understanding is that there is legal aid and pro bono um, org, but I am really not sure how it works on, on the pro bono case and which attorneys are assigned to who I'm not in practice. Good know. Any views? Well, I would say that it's an unfair view to kind of think that legal aid attorneys are inferior. Mm. That's tantamount to someone who says that black attorneys are inferior, which is a a standpoint that many people have. You'll find that um, most people, when they're doing well and money is coming into the bank, they'll go to Norton Rose and they'll go to other big, the big five law firms. And then once they have been, once Bavomiwe, and once there's no money left, then they want to come to Poshoko attorneys and tell me a story and say how this is happening, this is going wrong, and why they're not able to pay my deposit, but which I think is unfair. Same as me then, uh, or same as the per- perception that 
legal aid attorneys are inferior attorneys we all study the same thing they just happen to go to legal aid and legal aid does predominantly uh, criminal law work because there's always a legal aid practitioner at every uh, criminal court and then they also do some civil work but i think their civil work is limited to divorces and uh, yeah it's it's generally limited to divorces but they do do some civil work but not to the not to the extent as most private attorneys do but with regards to those sentiments about legal aid being inferior no just because in Toyamahala it doesn't mean that it is poor it's it's just that it's free and that's something you should um capitalize on that's my view yeah but i think people would legitimately say that look of all the prominent uh legal practitioners we've seen on television uh, and all the prominent cases none of them ever show up for these legal aid cases or it's probably something that they've done at the beginning of their careers how does it work um with legal aid you first sign up as a, a, the, the, the first channel you're a candidate attorney and then you can then be drafted and you can end up at an autumn rose having done your articles at um legal aid you know and um you can also be a, a, a professional attorney working at legal aid and then obviously you'll be dealing with the matter that legal aid specializes in and then there is something i think it's um they, they they do have advocates and attorneys that they brief for matters that are probably outside of their jurisdiction but then you have to be on a list of attorneys that legal aid uses it's so similar to a panel that banks have yeah. and other institutions have oh okay okay now uh-huh. that's uh, very very important for us to know and we actually have a caller on the line and this is andile from midran good evening andile good evening how are you all good 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 thank you yes um i'd just like a question to to ask a question right um i'm a single father and uh, I'm I'm just taking care of the baby on my own all the time. The mother is never involved in the kid's life, and uh, so so my problem is that you know she's also doing well. She's working. She can support the kid. She can assist me with the baby. But you know she's just focused on other things in life, like going out, partying, and she's never she never spends time with the kid. She doesn't do anything. So what legal course can I take, you know, to just get the mother involved? All right, Andile, let me direct this question to you, Debelo. I, I mean, I suspect in your line of work, you probably have a lot of these inquiries coming from females themselves who say, look, I've got a child, the father's not supporting me, and so it, it's usually um, just by the way our social uh, design is, that's the, usually the type of inquiry that you might get. In an instance like the one that Andile just raised, I mean, where would you sort of advise him to go and sort of get some assistance? So in the exact same manner, a um, disgruntled mother can apply for maintenance for her child from the father. A father can do the same. So he would have to go to um, the magistrate court in his jurisdiction um, where he's staying and basically make an application for maintenance. So an application for maintenance is yes. the way to if, go? If there's no maintenance order, I think I forgot to ask him whether or not there's a maintenance order. If there's no maintenance order, then um, as a point of departure, he should apply for um, maintenance. And if she defaults on that, then her it will be contempt of um, court and her property will be attached or whatever the case is to make her pay for maintenance of the child. Wait, actually, do still have Andile on the line. Andile, any comments on that? Uh, is there a maintenance order um, in place? So there's no maintenance order in place, um, but I will 
I will find out about the application. I just want to ask, are there any costs involved for someone who who can't afford to pay any legal fees in terms of apl- apl- applying for this? No, when you get to the magistrate's court, um, I think there is a magistrate's court in Midrand. When you get to the magistrate's court, you ask for a maintenance clerk and they will be able to assist you with um, filling in the maintenance form. And from there, uh, it will be taken to the magistrate who will make it a maintenance order. So the process is free. You just need to be able to get yourself to court. All right, Andile, all the best to that one. And I think also Kutlano has a comment on that. I think it's important to note that um, all parents have a, ma- a duty to maintain their children. Um, whether you're uh, wealthy or you're wealthy. not wealthy, yeah. um, you maintain your child according to your ability. So every child has two parents. Thus, that means every child has two people contributing to his or her upbringing. So if the dad earns more than the, the mother, then the mother of the child will still have to contribute, but obviously not to the extent that the in father will have to, yeah. yes, in proportion. That's, I think that's something that generally gets forgotten. Everybody tends to think that maintenance is something that the father must pay, which is yeah. not true. Yeah, and I mean, in, in in that instance, is the process of determining that is that something that you know we can sort of say is credible? What if I, as Andile, for example, then say, "Oh, wait, I'm unemployed, even though I might have a job, but I'm not in the normal employment industry. I'm an entrepreneur." I can then simply say my income is zero. Does that then not put to an undue burden on the other um, parent to then say, "Well"? One parent says that they're not in income, so the cost of the child is so much, you are fully responsible for those. How do we deal with those? When you go to maintenance court, there's an, uh, an investigation that can be done. That investigation takes into account the, the party's bank statements. Mm. So you're given the opportunity to um, bring forth your financial information. However, if the mother or the, or the, the father feels that the, the person who is giving information is not fully disclosing, there's an inquiry that, that is done and then the um, investigators dig further into the financial affairs of um, both parties. And then they'll be able to ascertain um, how much should be paid by who. All right. So there is a way, Afropolitans, for you to really go and really try to find a way to ensure that the other parent pays the equitable share. And of course, it's never an easy situation to deal with these things, particularly when there's young children involved and perhaps the relationship between the parents has deteriorated to an extent where they themselves don't really get along. So we've seen instances of that, but of course, you always have to sort of put the legal system as the mediator. And I think when the legal system is a mediator, then makes things easier because it's a far more objective process. We also have another caller who is Macholo from Tembisa. Good evening, Macholo. Hello, how are you? All good, and you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I have a question. Um, my aunt is my aunt who was married to my uncle. Um, my uncle passed away and then just uh, right before he passed away, he made a will. However, he was very sick. Um, he had he, he had cancer, and then when by the time when he made a will, um, his brother went with him to to those attorneys in, in Johannesburg, and they drafted a will for him. And the brother uh, is is now a beneficiary in of the will. He's the executor of the will, and he says now I must. The 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 aunt must sell the property. So I don't understand how come because 
and my aunt is married to this to to the deceased of Kopati. What should she do now? Because now uh, the, the 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 brother to to my aunt, to my uncle is 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 the executor of of the estate. Yeah, a difficult one, Machalo. Tebelo, can I ask you for your comments first? I got bits and pieces of that. Um, oh my goodness, I got bits and pieces of that. Kutrana, did you catch most of it? Um, I caught that the lady's uncle was married to her aunt. And then the uncle passed away. But just before the uncle passed away, he drafted a will. Mm-hmm. And in the will, I think property was then assigned to the 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 brother Mm. and then now the brother is trying to uh, kick the aunt out is trying to force the aunt to sell the property so the status right now is that the brother is both the executor as well as an as the heir so i think it just talks to the the drafting of a will and the formalities and and i I think for me the one suspicion that i have is really the questions of the capacity of the deceased to really um really do the make the right decisions because he was quite sick by the time these things were done. I hope we've catch, captured your story correctly, Macholo. And in instances like that, where a person perhaps is becoming um, gradually incapacitated, and you know, you then see the will as a children or as a spouse after the funeral, and it makes no sense whatsoever. What type of recourse would you have? Um, the validity of the will can be contested in court. And the person who is alleging that it is not valid um, will have to state reasons in, in the application made to court. And they will use incapacitation as one of the reasons for why they believe that that will wasn't drafted and executed um, validly. All right. I think, I hope, Macholo, you got the crux of that, essentially, that a will can be contested in court. But uh, Kutlano also has a comment on that. I think it would also be wise to look at how the will was drafted with the formalities of a will um, complied with. So that would be the first point. Um, was it signed properly? Um, if the heir was one of this, um, the witnesses, then that's problematic. He would not be able to, because you can't witness a will in which you are an heir. So I think let's start there. And then from there, take it on to Debelo's, um advice because it is a cost-saving exercise if you can just nullify the will because of formalities. But if, yeah. you, if you want to contest the validity of the will, Debelo's advice would then suffice. Uh, uh, all right. I'm hoping that we're able to... Um, assist our caller in really sort of knowing which way to proceed forward and of course a will can be contested especially if you have worries about really the competency of the deceased when it did execute on that will and we're going to take our last caller and this is Tiki from Midrand good evening Tiki hi how are you all good um so I just have a question well a friend of mine um had been driving a stolen car so this is a car he purchased you know how people um so sell cars outside of um well without using a dealership yeah so um a car was purchased and the person was stopped and they were um buying a uh, driving a stolen car and they were unaware that they're driving a stolen car yeah so now they've discovered that the car was stolen yes so they purchased a car from somebody yeah you know people advertise on facebook they advertise on many different um platforms and now they've been stopped and this car is a stolen vehicle and are they able to take it back to this to the seller and say can i have my money back or is that no longer a possibility 
um, it's no longer a possibility because this person is no longer um, available. Wherever they try to reach them, they are unav- un- unable to reach this person. Oh, good plan. What do we do? Mm, okay, so when you purchase a vehicle, um, there are documents mm-hmm. that you sign, obviously, to transfer the motor vehicle. So the seller would sign on the, 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 the seller side. Uh, you know those, vehicle, those uh, documents you get at the license department. So, yeah. And then you also attach your ID and then vice versa. So um, I would use that as prima facie proof that you actually purchased the vehicle as well as if you transferred money, you can also Mm -hmm. use that to show that you in fact, because this is actually now a criminal offense. So to kind of get yourself out of the um, criminal um, situation, you would need to show that you in fact did purchase the motor vehicle and you thought that everything was being done accordingly and then the blame would then for, for the motor vehicle being stolen what um, investigating officers then do they i'd like to say follow the money but what they would actually do is then okay you have absolved yourself you have shown that you have purchased the motor vehicle and you are not guilty of any offense they would then follow the next reasonable person who could possibly um, be guilty of that offense and that would be the person that you point out as the seller if you can't get hold of them that is now no longer your problem that's why police investigate so they would have to take it from there Oh, all right. Thank you very much, Kutrano. And unfortunately, Afropolitans, we are out of time. And I'd like to thank my guest, Debolo Mochwane, who's an attorney and the founder of Sister-in-Law, which is available on Twitter and Instagram at sister underscore in underscore law underscore. And Kutrano Poshoko is a director at Poshoko Attorneys for really giving us some insight into some legal conundrums that we might have faced. And I'm hoping that our listeners were able to get some guidance of what they need to do. But of course, that needs to be supplemented by proper legal advice out there and on that note Afropolitans this is the Law Report hosted by Kaya Sitole on behalf of Michael Morton and Bill and have a wonderful Rewinding, Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind visit kayafm.co.za for more